Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by rhinologist and skull-based surgeon, Dr. Sanjeet Rangarajan, and we will be discussing allergic fungal rhinosinusitis. Dr. Rangarajan, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. This is, uh, it's going to be good. So I first wanted to start with presentation, um, and there's uh, kind, of a, kind of a specific geographic presentation, which is why I'm excited to have you today. Um, can you tell us about the type of patient who presents to your clinic? Yeah, certainly. So I think before I you know, get into the details of how these patients present, it is important to note, as you've alluded, that uh, I am located in the southeastern United States in Tennessee. And uh, we see this type of patient uh, much more frequently than uh, in other parts of the country. And so um, I do see allergic fungal patients uh, that are both male and female. They do tend to be males more often. However, uh, I do see uh, plenty of females and uh, people really of all ages. Um, They tend to present a lot like regular chronic rhinosinusitis patients. So they'll come to you with very similar symptoms, nasal obstruction, facial pain, pressure. They can't smell. They can't taste. Uh, A couple of the ones that may give their diagnoses away may actually present with uh, that they may be blowing out some kind of discolored or thick mucin. They may describe uh, debris that comes out from their nose that they're having to blow out from time to time. Um, Again, many of these patients are located in the southeastern United States. However, uh, you know I have seen them uh, in the Midwest and the Northeast uh, during parts of my training as well. Um, important to note that this is people with allergic fungal sinusitis are not the uh, majority of our CRS cases. They do represent a minority, roughly five to ten percent. Um, uh, and most importantly, it's important to distinguish these patients uh, from those who are immunocompromised who may be presenting with a different type of fungal sinusitis, namely invasive fungal sinusitis. So these patients are uh, uh, presenting very similarly to your average CRS patient um, with maybe a couple of other uh, uh, symptoms that I mentioned. The last thing I'll mention, and this tends to happen in more advanced cases of AFS, but because again, I'm in the South and I see a large number of these patients, I do occasionally get someone who comes in uh, presenting with telecanthus or other uh, alterations to their facial appearance or facial structure. Um, occasionally, there'll be proptosis. Uh, these are the you know, obviously advanced cases of allergic fungal sinusitis, but, um, but it's important to um, maintain a wide differential in order to properly diagnose these patients. And could you speak a little bit more to the epidemiology of this disease? Who are the types of patients, specifically the age that they present with? And are there any risk factors that you notice or that you ask about in clinic? Yeah. So these patients tend to be on the younger side. Um, it certainly doesn't exclude uh, older individuals from having the disease, but they do tend to be um, younger, um, you know, anywhere from the teenage years uh, all the way up to into their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the natural evolution and course of the disease and why that, you know, tends to be, um, potential other risk factors. Uh, this tends to present itself in, um, more impoverished, uh, or, uh, people with lack of access to care. Uh, it can, it can occur really in, uh, any racial group. Uh, however, traditionally African-Americans have also, um, presented with the disease, um, more often. 
Um, again, in the southeastern United States, the disease doesn't necessarily uh, discriminate between age and uh, uh, race, but it does tend to present more often in these demographics. And uh, when you are seeing these patients in clinic, um, what are some more questions that you might be asking specifically for your HPI uh, to tease out that this is uh, allergic fungal versus uh, something else? Yeah. So, you know, like I mentioned, especially in advanced cases, uh, you know, again, those that are presenting with, you know, proptosis or, you know, uh, things like that, uh, I I do think it's important to ask uh, other screening questions uh, to differentiate these patients from those who may be presenting with, um, you know, a tumor or a malignancy. So important to ask questions like, uh, you know, are you having any pain? Are you having any numbness? It's important to, uh, um, you know, do a cranial nerve exam and make sure there's no cranial neuropathies. Um, extraocular eye movements are important to check, especially since uh, advanced cases of allergic fungal sinusitis can extend uh, and displace the orbit. Um, uh, again, you know, I ask questions about sense of smell and uh, uh, history of allergies. We'll note that allergic. Uh, uh, hypersensitivity plays a significant role in the pathogenesis of allergic fungal sinusitis. And so uh, sometimes these patients will come in with either prior testing or knowledge uh, that they are sensitive uh, to certain aeroallergens. Uh, um, interestingly, it's uh, interesting to note uh, when patients move to a different geographic location. So for instance, if they move from the north uh, to the south, uh, sometimes people don't develop these symptoms until after a move uh, when they're changing their their environment uh, in some way. And when you're seeing these patients in clinic, uh, what does your physical exam look like? And are you regularly performing nasal endoscopy? It's a great question. So again, because these patients um, are presenting with very similar symptoms to either something you know, on the benign side, like chronic rhinosinusitis, but on the other hand, could, you know, have something uh, more, um, more severe, like a, you know, benign or malignant tumor. It's important to um, ask all of the questions that we've discussed. uh, But when doing our physical exam, again, we're paying very close attention to uh, facial structure, contour of the orbit. We're asking, you know, do you feel like uh, your facial appearance has changed? Um, a complete head and neck exam is always important to perform. And I do perform nasal endoscopy for these patients. Um, and when I perform nasal endoscopy, I'm looking for uh, a couple of key things. You know, one, uh, these patients will almost always have uh, some amount of nasal polyposis. And again, in advanced cases, you're going to uh, uh, see this uh, in the anterior nasal cavity extending you know, sometimes into the nasopharynx, uh, it'll obviously be filling the middle meatus, but polyposis is a big portion, a big part of how these patients present. Um, I'm also looking for the appearance of allergic mucin, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, as we uh, go through the podcast today. Um, allergic mucin tends to be very, uh, very obvious. It's very thick, um, and uh, the mucin looks different from you know some of the other mucopurulents and other. Uh, uh, findings that we're used to associating with CRS. And yeah, moving on to pathophysiology, can you tell us what the etiology of this disease is? Yeah, so it's really important to note um, how allergic fungal sinusitis differs from other fungal infections and also how it differs from chronic rhinosinusitis. And I think the common misconception um, amongst patients, uh, 
and other other physicians really that that this is not a fungal infection of the sinuses. There are certainly fungi uh, present in the sinuses and in the mucin, but what causes the issue is really a type two allergic inflammatory response against colonizing fungi that enter the sinonasal tract uh, from you know a patient's environment, and and that kind of explains why this happens in some geographic re, uh, regions compared to others. And so again, this is a, a hypersensitivity reaction to the fungus that is creating um, a local uh, tissue and inflammatory response. And, and that is what starts the, uh, the cycle that leads to allergic fungal sinusitis. And as much as I try to avoid talking about uh, the allergic pathways, could you tell us which pathway we're talking about here from an allergic uh, and inflammation standpoint? And what are some of the common uh, fungi that are uh, reported in these allergies? Sure, sure. So, you know, we'll just go through the key steps and how this occurs. Um, you know, the first is that fungal spores that are that are really circulating in the environment, uh, in the air, um, they probably are you know, in a lot of our noses here in the, uh, in the Southeastern United States, and they become trapped in the, in the sinus, uh, uh, mucosa and the mucus. Um, that's the function of mucus is to trap these, uh, you know, circulating materials. And so, uh, in certain hosts or in certain patients, they become sensitized to these fungal antigens and the spores then generate hyphae, which are the antigenic stimulus. And so then there's this uh, type two allergic response uh, that uh, leads to allergic inflammation, much like it does with uh, re- you know normal nasal polyposis, um, and then there's an eosinophilic response, and we'll know that the we'll note later that these patients uh, you know may uh, present with elevated uh, IgE um, as well as uh, eosinophils, um, elevated e- tissue eosinophils. Um, so, much like chronic rhinosinusitis, this type two response leads to damage to the sinonasal mucosa, which then starts our, uh, you know, cyclical, uh, uh, pattern of damage to the sinus mucosa, which is then unable to do its job. Um, and then, and then that's, uh, you know, basically the same, the pathways to polyposis are the same as for, uh, uh, chronic rhinosinusitis. And so, um, there's numerous different fungi that are implicated, um, to cause, uh, allergic fungal, and uh, bipolaris, uh, curvilaria, aspergillus, uh, these are some of the more common uh, fungi that are found. Um, bacterial infection can also uh, occur um, in conjunction with allergic fungal sinusitis. And um, interestingly, as this cycle gets out of control and polyps uh, uh, are generated and this allergic mucin uh, starts to develop, there can actually be erosion of the bone of the sinuses. So it's not uncommon um, for uh, for patients to present with uh, uh, eroded uh, lamina papricia or uh, in, even in some uh, severe uh, situations, erosion of the skull base or the nasal bones. Um, these are all possibilities with allergic fungal sinusitis. Yeah. And you're getting to one of the questions that I like to ask about natural history for this disease. Uh, In our CRS episode, we talked about the minimal risk of some complications like orbital abscesses and that kind of thing. Uh, With these patients, uh, do you have a lower threshold to counsel them that the risk of complications is higher and therefore the need for intervention uh, is probably a little more likely? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to uh, 
you know, first set expectations for patients in terms of what they can expect with either, you know, medical or surgical therapy, which we'll get into later. But, um, I do tell patients that, and, and, you know, I try to do it in simplistic, uh, simplistic terms. I tell them this is not your ordinary, uh, sinusitis. This is, uh, this is, this is a chronic process, which, um, has the potential to erode, adjacent structures, um, and without treatment that, uh, they could have significant issues with, uh, with vision, certainly, obviously the sinonasal, um, issues that come along with this disease, but also erosion of the bone of the cranial base, um, and, uh, and others. And I tell them that, you know, this is not a, uh, this is not a tumor per se, this is not a growth or a neoplasm, but, um, in many ways, the process can sometimes act like one. And so, you know, the, the same things that we expect with neoplasms, you know, erosion and extension and pressure on, you know, certain adjacent vital structures that can also occur here. Um, I also tell them this is not the type of disease that, you know, necessarily always gets better with medications, although that's, you know, certainly part of it. But I do stress that, um, that when patients see me for the first time that we're together, most likely for, uh, for a long road, that's going to involve several different, um, treatment modalities. And one last question for pathophysiology and pathogenesis. Could you speak to the laterality of this disease? Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, you know, fungal sinusitis can present in several different ways. I mean, i i you see it occasionally just unilateral, um, you know, uh, involving one or two or, or three sinuses. Um, it, there's to me, in my opinion, there's, there's somewhat of a spectrum of presentation. Um, you know, you see your maxillary or sphenoid mycetoma, but, uh, but that we're talking about a different process here. So, um, this can present unilaterally, although I will say that in my practice here in the South, I do see it very often bilaterally as well. Um, very, very rarely am I taking someone to the operating room just to do, uh, you know, one side for their allergic fungal sinusitis. And so, um, but, uh, but this really can present, uh, you know, in either way. And what else do you have on the differential diagnosis when a patient presents with the, the symptoms and history that we've been talking about? Certainly. So, in these patients, again, most of them, or all, really all of them, are presenting um, in an immunocompetent fashion. So they're presenting very similarly to your chronic rhinosinusitis patients. So, um, so certainly CRS is high on your differential. Um, allergic rhinitis with an allergy to fungus can also uh, occur. Um, we already mentioned um, neoplasms, uh, which can be either benign or malignant. Um, it's not uncommon to uh, actually have these patients present to you with a, um, with a, a CT report or an MRI report that may actually mention something like, uh, you know, question malignant or benign erosive tumor. Um, occasionally, most of the time radiologists are catching this appropriately, but, uh, but you know, there, there's other things you can think about. So, so tumors, um, uh, Obviously, invasive fungal sinusitis is something you think about. Um, however, the physical exam does uh, differ quite a bit between um, invasive fungal sinusitis and allergic fungal sinusitis. Um, and uh, uh, that, you know, we, we talked about mycetomas, but that pretty much is, leads to the extent of uh, the differential. I'll say that this is very easy to spot, especially if you're used to seeing it. And um, we've talked about presentation, pathophysiology. So you see a patient, um, you examine them. 
What's your next step in the workup for these folks? Great. So, so like I mentioned, a big part of what I do before I even order any tests or you know additional scans and things like that is I, I do counsel the patient. If I'm suspecting a, a diagnosis of allergic fungal sinusitis, I explain to them that you know the the workup is going to involve several uh, several tests and uh, and then and they may require additional interventions as well. So before I even order anything, I'm definitely counseling them on what to expect, um, and I share with them a lot of the information that we've actually talked about today. So with that said. Uh, most of the time, these patients are presenting with uh, pre-existing imaging. Um, they're usually coming with a, a CT scan or, or an MRI, and if they haven't, um, then I'll uh, I'll typically order one. Um, now, if a patient comes in with no imaging, um, most of the time I'm just ordering uh, a CT of the sinuses. However, um, ordering an MRI is also um, very valid and may be helpful in some situations, especially in more advanced cases where we may be concerned about uh, erosion or um, or uh, pressure on adjacent structures, and also to assist with surgical planning. Um, so, imaging is a really uh, you know big part of this. Now, we talked about our differential diagnosis earlier. If uh, if I'm not sure, you know, or and if I'm thinking, you know, could this be a tumor? Could this be something else? Um, you know, uh, you know, you could. You could potentially, uh, you know, as long as it's safe, you know, to get biopsy or something like that. Uh, certainly, an allergy evaluation is going to be important for these patients. So, I think uh, you know, testing them for uh, elevated um, IgE, uh, getting a, a CBC with differential to try to identify if they have um, uh, elevated uh, levels of eosinophils. Um, Many of these patients are going to require allergy testing for aeroallergens anyways, and they can certainly be uh, tested for an allergy to fungus using, uh, you know, typical skin prick or intradermal testing. Um, and, uh, and that pretty much comprises uh, the workup for these patients. And could you speak a little bit more to what you will find on imaging, both CT and if you choose to obtain it, the MRI? Sure. So... The, the basic sinus CT is going to look, um, it's going to look similar to your chronic rhinosinusitis uh, average CRS uh, patient, but there's going to be a couple of key differences that's going to help us, uh, you know, tell the difference between these patients. Um, so, you know, certainly nasal polyposis is going to be a big part of this. So you'll see a lot of hyperdensity, you know, again, it can be unilateral, but it can also be bilateral. Um, it can it can present in any or all of the sinuses, and interestingly, especially in areas that are larger, like the maxillary sinus or um, you know even the even the ethmoids, you'll see these hyper dense uh, areas, uh, and they can be seen much better as long as you're. Uh, they can be seen if you alter your windowing so that you're not just looking at. Uh, uh, bone windows on your CT scan. If you if you change them so that you can actually identify some of these hyperdense areas, this diagnosis can sometimes just give it so give it its give itself away on um, on CT. And those areas of hyperdensity are generally where the allergic mucin um, is uh, is collecting. Um, certainly, an MRI again we mentioned uh, can be helpful, especially in those more advanced uh, cases. Um, and those are going to be uh, the hyperdense areas on CT are going to show up as hypo intense on uh, T2. 
And uh, bony expansion is also a big part of this. Again, going back to our CT, you may see uh, displacement of the uh, lamina papricia, of the septum, of the skull base. Um, sometimes the intersinus septum within the sphenoid sinus may be displaced to one side or the other. Um, it, it looks like a chronic process. And uh, again, you have to be careful to uh, identify these changes in anatomy uh, before you know, taking the next step and going to the operating room. And before we go to the diagnostic criteria for this diagnosis, um, is it reasonable to think you can obtain pathology in the clinic or is that more obtained in the operating room? And what do we see on pathology? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the important thing um, for anyone to consider, you know, if you're seeing, you know, patients that uh, present in this way in the clinic is you know, certainly it's, it's reasonable to obtain a biopsy, but you have to really ask yourself, is that, is that the safest thing to do always? So certainly we mentioned that there's, you know, a wide variety of other pathology that can uh, present in this way. Um, these patients sometimes are going to give themselves away. Um, certainly you could obtain a biopsy if you have a question, but I don't generally biopsy these patients in the clinic solely because, um, most of their other physical exam or endoscopy findings are pathognomonic for the disease. Um, and, uh, you know, like I'm hinting, uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's not always the best or safest thing to take a biopsy in the operating room. Uh, certainly, um, a pathologic diagnosis of allergic fungal sinusitis doesn't necessarily change my management in the operating room either. And of course we'll discuss surgery, um, shortly. And since we've been talking around it, what's the official diagnostic criteria uh, to diagnose uh, allergic fungal? Yeah. So um, the symptoms have to be lasting longer than 12 weeks. So it's a lot like chronic sinusitis. Um, but then we have to apply our Benton Kuhn criteria in order to fully establish the diagnosis. And so um, the criteria are that the patient has to have uh, CRS with nasal polyposis, of course, um, presence of eosinophilic mucin. Um, and then there has to be diagnostic evidence of uh, IgE-mediated uh, allergy to the fungus, um, and that can be, again, performed uh, um, in vitro or uh, via skin testing. Um, characteristic radiographic findings, so we've already discussed those CT findings with, you know, uh, bony expansion, uh, you know, chronic panopacification of the sinus, uh, sinuses along with, um, uh, you know, those hyper- uh, hyperdense areas uh, signifying the presence of allergic mucin. And then lastly, uh, as we said before, there can't be fungal invasion because, uh, you know, once there is uh, angioinvasion, um, then we are looking at a different diagnosis of invasive fungal sinusitis. And you mentioned eosinophilic mucin being part of the diagnostic criteria. Are there any buzzwords we should know about this, um, particularly related to the pathology of eosinophilic mucin? Yeah, definitely. So Charcot-Leyden crystals is the buzzword that you want to think about. Um, and uh, the eosinophilic mucin is generally going to, under the microscope, show uh, fungal hyphae. And once you've made the diagnosis using the diagnostic criteria or just, you know, in your case, overall clinical suspicion, um, what's the next step in treatment? Is there a role for medical management or do you go straight to surgery? So generally the allergic mucin tends to be so thick. It gets compared to peanut butter, uh, you know, or any, you know, other, uh, uh kind of goopy substance. And it, it tends to be very difficult for patients to clear this on their own with your typical, you know, treatments like, uh, irrigations. Um, you know, certainly, 
um, medical management can be attempted. These patients do usually feel better with um, administration of oral steroids, but you know, as we know with uh, chronic rhinitis sinusitis, this is just a stopgap. It's not uh, certainly not a long-term treatment, and it is very difficult to get these people, um, uh, you know, 100% uh, better just on medical therapy, but. Um, with that said, I do usually start medical therapy for these patients, and it usually is comprised of uh, some type of uh, uh, steroid irrigation. Again, we get them plugged in with our uh, allergy and immunology colleagues in order to obtain the uh, appropriate diagnostics. Uh, we can consider uh, certain medications uh, for them. Uh, again, this is not uh, you know antimicrobial medications, but more on the allergy side, and certainly you know. Uh, biologics are kind of a new and exciting, uh, you know, treatment paradigm for us. And uh, there may be, you know, some potential there. I'll tell you that most of the patients that present with this disease in my practice do require some type of operative intervention. And part of that is just getting back to our uh, long-held belief that surgery serves a couple of different um, roles. And one of those is to create a uh, more open sinonasal cavity so that, you know, whatever we are irrigating with, whatever steroids we're delivering topically can actually uh, get to where they need to go. And that's a very tall order when the sinuses are filled with um, very thick allergic mucin. So can you tell us a little bit about how you counsel patients on surgery, what they should expect um, immediately postoperatively and, and uh, following? Sure. So I talk to these patients uh, similarly to how I, you know, talk to all of my uh, functional endoscopic sinus surgery patients. Um, you know, I the, the most important thing I can tell them though is uh, is anything relating to managing expectations. And so I tell them that you know, listen, you know, here are the details of your disease. I, I really think that um, the best option for you would be to present to the operating room. Um, for sinus surgery, our plan is to remove as much of this um, or all of the allergic mucin, um, as well as open the sinuses and uh, promote a healthier, safer uh, sinus cavity, so that uh, we can treat you with um, topical therapies and uh, you know other therapies to keep you well. Now, when I talk about managing expectations, I let them know that surgery is not necessarily going to be a one and done. Uh, you know, type of operation. I tell them, you know, this is a, this is, this disease is, um, is occurring because of a systemic reaction that you're having to circulating fungus in the air. And I tell them, you know, we can't really, you know, remove the fungus from the air and it's, uh, it can be difficult to control the systemic reaction. And so I tell them that we have to, you know, do the surgery, but also compliance with post-operative medications, following up with allergy immunology, uh, whatever avoidance um, actions we can take. I mean, these are all important things. And I tell them, you know, we're going to do surgery. This is what it's going to feel like, uh, but um, but you have to follow up afterwards. And so I usually tell them you're going to feel better immediately after surgery um, because we're going to be removing all the polyposis and the uh, allergic mucin. And so you're going to have a lot more room than you're used to. And so you're going to feel better immediately. But I tell them, that doesn't mean that you're cured. Okay. This is kind of the first step in, uh, in a long road of, uh, of getting relief. And what's uh, medical management like postoperatively? So for these patients, I try to get them started on, um, steroid irrigations. I do tend to use uh, budesonide or mimetazone in my irrigations. And sometimes I'll start them, um, 
I'll start them before we go to the operating room, not because I think it's going to uh, significantly improve their symptoms, but it is good to get into the habit of it because, uh, you know, like any habits that we try to get into um, ourselves, uh, it takes time to, to make it second nature. And so, but afterwards, after the operating room, I do make sure that they're on um, uh, topical steroids. Um, I usually I start them on, uh, oral steroids five days before going to the operating room. And that's, um, you know, just to improve the operative field and I will, uh, taper them down, um, over the course of, um, uh, 10 days following, uh, going to the operating room. You know, certainly a lot of these patients are on, uh, other, you know, anti-allergy drugs, uh, antihistamines. It all depends on, you know, what their preoperative workup, uh, looked like you know, immunotherapy is a great option for these patients. Uh, again, we try to get everyone tested uh, beforehand. Um, the worst thing uh, that can happen is we do a surgery and then the rest of their workup is delayed and then they inevitably recur because we're not thinking about, you know, the disease as systemic. And can you speak to some other possible therapies? You mentioned biologics earlier. Yeah. So, you know, we mentioned before that this is an IgE mediated um you know, disease. And so the thought is, is that if you interfere in that type two, uh, uh, type two inflammatory pathway, uh, much like we think about polyposis, that certain biologics, uh, you know, could be helpful. So omalizumab um, is, uh, you know, it's an IgE targeted monoclonal antibody that uh, could potentially, um, you know, help. Um, you know, obviously there's other parts of the, um, of the pathway that could be deranged. And so targets for, you know, IL-5, IL-4, IL-13 uh, may also um, serve some good. I'll say that these are new medications. And so, uh, you know, again, because these are younger patients and they may be, you know, dealing with this disease for some time, um, there's a complex uh, uh, decision-making process that comes with, you know, access to the drug, cost of the drug, and uh, whether or not they are going to be you know, more helpful than some of the other modalities that we're utilizing. I'll mention antifungal agents because historically there's a wide variation in how we approach um, this disease. And so obviously it's called allergic fungal sinusitis. So you'd think that, you know, maybe if we, if we treat it like a fungal infection, we would get some, uh, uh, some relief for these patients. And, and certainly in my community, there are many people that will still um, utilize, you know, antifungals, uh, either topically or orally. Um, the, most of the evidence is not there uh, for this. And so um, topical antifungals, oral antifungals um, for allergic fungal sinusitis is not part of my, uh, you know, typical treatment regimen. So we've gone over um, treatment here. We've talked about surgery and and post-op medical management, including steroids, immunotherapy, possible biologic therapy. How do you counsel patients on what they should expect in terms of, are they likely to recur? Are they going to need to take these medications for life? Uh, how does that conversation go? Yeah. So I tell them that, you know, if, uh, you know, if they don't follow up again, you remember, I tell them that you're going to feel great after surgery, just because, especially with many of these patients who present on the later side, they've dealt with some pretty significant symptoms for some time. So, you know, automatically, you know, if, if I'm talking to someone who uh, is getting surgery for something that's not polyps or not allergic fungal sinusitis, I usually actually tell those folks that they're going to feel a little bit worse after surgery and then, you know, have a slow recovery. These patients, uh, you know, you really have to tell them that, uh, you know, if you don't follow up, um, you know, because you feel great, this will almost certainly 
return. Um, and so, you know, I, I tell them not only do you have to follow up, but you have to be compliant with your, um, you know, topical, uh, topical steroids and, uh, you know, for patients who are concerned, you know, do I have to do this for the rest of my life? Is this a lifelong disease? Like, you know, like, like type one diabetes or something like that. Uh, you know, I tell them that the disease can get better with time. Um, but you know, some of my patients who are, you know, presenting in their twenties, you know, it may be some time and we may need to really stay on top of things for a while and make sure that they get, uh, you know, all the adjuvant therapies and diagnostics to keep them out of trouble. Um, I do tend to see these patients in the office, uh, fairly routinely. Um, you know, if you do, uh, if you do a good surgery, you know, nice wide open cavities, um, we, we mentioned that topicals are going to get there more easily, but there's also an important, uh, surveillance role for, um, for a nice wide open ethmoid cavity, sphenoid, uh, cavity. You know, if you can see these areas in the office, you can sometimes det detect the return of, you know, polyposis and allergic mucin, uh, and, uh, intervene as necessary. And do you ever have patients who wonder if they were to move to a different geographic region, if that would solve the problem? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously, again, in Tennessee, especially in the uh, southwestern part of the state, it's, it's very humid. There is a very high incidence of allergic fungal uh, disease. And so, um, you know, <laughs> there are patients who, uh, uh, you know, either uh, hear from their friends or hear from some other, you know, area that, uh, you know, maybe if I move to, you know, Phoenix, Arizona or, um, you know, some other really dry place, uh, um, you know, you know, will I get better? Um, in some cases, the answer is yes. I mean, I have seen that patient, I've seen that, you know, happen with patients, but, uh, um, but then others, uh, you know, are somewhat disappointed when they move as well. But, um, you know, obviously the, the disease is endemic in certain geographic regions for a reason. And you kind of started talking about this. Uh, what's your follow-up regimen with them, both both immediately postoperatively and long-term? Great question. So um, again, I'm you know really hyper vigilant with uh, with fungus patients, and so um, you know I'll usually see them back at about the you know one to two week mark uh, immediately postoperatively. This is the time when they're usually still uh, tapering off of their oral steroids. Um, I, I see them for a couple of different reasons. A, most of them need some type of um, cytonasal debridement or at the very least a diagnostic endoscopy to uh, you know, clear out any retained blood products or retained packing material. Um, I'll usually see them about two weeks after that uh, at about the month mark. Um, many may consider that to be you know, a little bit overkill, but uh, for me, it's another opportunity to really drive home uh, the concept of uh, following up when expected, as well as uh, staying um, compliant with irrigations. And uh, you really get a sense early on as to who's compliant and who's not based on, you know, sometimes the appearance of that sinonasal cavity. And so I don't do it necessarily to test the patients, but more to gather information as to who is going to need, um, you know, to who's going to need more help to um, stay on top of the disease. And so, so after about that month mark, if they're doing well, if they're doing their uh, irrigations, I'll see them, you know, maybe a month afterwards or maybe six weeks. And then I usually for the first year, see these patients every um, two to three months, as long as they're not having issues. But, um, you know, I, I tell my patients to have a very low threshold to call me because again, these patients can recur even in the first year, 
uh, with uh, polyposis. And I tell them to be mindful for some of the, you know, quote, invisible symptoms of the disease, things like uh, anosmia, which recurs and, you know, things like that. And so I try to I try to stay in close contact with them over the course of at least the first year. And is there a thought that this uh, disease it presents in young younger folks? Is there a thought that this disease kind of burns out over time? Yeah, there's some thought with that, and and, and anecdotally, I can say that I've seen that um, you know in my patients as well. Um, however, I again, I don't know if it's because of the specific area that I'm that I'm in, but I mean, I have seen people who are you know, later in their forties and fifties still get the disease, but rarely do I see someone, um, in late adulthood who has uh, florid allergic, uh, allergic fungal sinusitis. Um, occasionally, um, a fungal mycetoma, isolated sinus, you know, that sort of thing. I've seen that more commonly in older, uh, patients, but I think it's fair to say that the d- disease does tend to, you know, quote, burn itself out or improve over the course of years, uh, uh, especially if patients are you know, presenting to you in their 20s and 30s. One other question that I did want to ask you about surgical management is if it presents unilaterally, do you automatically perform bilateral sinus surgery? So it's a good question. Um, I think you're going to get answers that are uh, across the board. Um, you know, we've obviously talked about um, this disease as a systemic disease, Um you know, not something that's, uh, you know, focally limited. And so, you know, with that thinking, the thought would be is, well, if it's systemic to systemic disease, then you should do surgery on both sides. Um, I do tend to be a little bit more on the conservative side and I, I would only probably treat someone on one side if, uh, if there were absolutely zero evidence of disease on the contralateral side. Um, I verify that several times. So, you know, obviously I'm looking in the office um, and then, you know, we usually would get imaging afterwards. And, you know, if it was unilateral at that time, I would probably still consent for bilateral surgery um, at the time of the operation. But, you know, if I look in at the time of surgery as well, and it, you know, appears stone cold normal, I probably would actually leave that side alone. Um you know, so, and, and some may, some may say, well, why, you know, it's a systemic disease, you're there, you know, you could subject this person to, you know, more than one anesthesia. Um, again, I tend to be more conservative and, um, you know, my thought is, is that if we can alleviate, uh, alleviate the anatomic obstruction, remove the allergic mucin from one side, keep them on bilateral topical irrigations and, you know, whatever treatments, systemic treatments we were going to try before, to me, it's better to keep, um, uh, a native functioning sinus uh, up front, especially, you know, again, if these patients end up going back to the operating room uh, in the future, many of these patients have to go more than once, uh, you'll always have another chance. And so that's my kind of personal thinking about it. Well, Dr. Rangarajan, this has been an awesome discussion. Um, before I move into our summary, is there anything we haven't talked about or anything you wanted to highlight? You know, I think the other important thing that I didn't mention before is, uh, you know, with regards to surgical technique, I really think, um, you know, I mentioned that this is difficult to get all of the allergic mucin out. It tends to be very thick peanut buttery consistency. I really believe that, you know, opening the sinuses is, is one main objective, but it's really important to go after every last bit of allergic mucin. I've found um, if I shortchange myself, uh, leaving some in the frontal sinus, you know, some of these areas that take uh, some more time, effort, and risk to get to, um, I do find that these patients recur, um, you know, quickly in those areas. And so, um, so I do think it's really important to uh, uh, to stay on top of um, 
these patients by doing a good, complete job in surgery. Well, Dr. Rangarajan, thanks so much. I'll I'll now move into the summary. Um, Allergic fungal rhinosinusitis is a form of rhinosinusitis that is most commonly seen in the south-southeast along the Mississippi River Basin, and the pathophysiology includes a Th2 response or allergy to fungus in the nose. Uh, Workup includes objective findings such as in-office endoscopy, CT scan, and occasionally MRI if there's a need to tease it out from another uh, possible pathology. Lab workup will re- and allergy testing will reveal an IgE response to fungus, and the official diagnosis is made by the Bent and Kuhn criteria, which are the following: presence of CRS with nasal polyposis, the presence of eosinophilic mucin, evidence of IgE-mediated allergy to fungus, and characteristic radiographic findings, and of course, no fungal invasion. Treatment includes medical management similar to chronic rhinosinusitis, including rinses and steroids, but these patients often need to go to uh, the operating room for endoscopic sinus surgery, uh, both to open up sinuses and take down septations, but also to remove all of that mucin. And disease course is often more aggressive in younger adults, but uh, might be easier to control in later decades. Anything else you would add, Dr. Rangarajan? No, I think that about sums it up in a nutshell. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll now move on to the question asking portion of our time. Uh, As a reminder, I'll ask a question, pause for a few seconds, and then uh, give the answer. For our first question, describe the classic imaging findings of allergic fungal rhinosinusitis. So as we talked, um, this disease is often described as being unilateral, but, but clinically it seems that it can be bilateral quite frequently, and the CT scan will demonstrate a pacified sinuses with dense accumulations of eosinophilic mucin and possible bony erosion. If an MRI is obtained on the T2 imaging, those hyper-dense lesions on the CT scan will be hypo-intense. For our next question, name the five aspects of the Bent and Kuhn criteria for diagnosis in allergic fungal rhinosinusitis. The five uh, aspects of the Bent and Kuhn criteria are one, the presence of CRS with nasal polyposis, two, eosinophilic mucin, and recall that those contain Charcot Leiden crystals, uh, three, evidence of IgE-mediated allergy to fungus, four, characteristic radiographic findings that we've discussed, and five, no fungal invasion. And finally, for our last question, what is the role of antifungals in this disease process? As we've discussed historically, it was thought that antifungals uh, played more of a role in this disease process, but because this is more of an allergy than an infection, there's almost no role for antifungal medication in this disease process, but there are promising medical therapies such as biologics, which are on the horizon. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.